Assalamu alaikum, good morning and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Hamad Khan, the time is 2 minutes past 10 on today, Sunday the 15th of October 2023. And you're listening live to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. On Weekend World, we talk about the week's news. We go behind the headlines and get into some of the de- get into some of the details of the news. And I'm very lucky to be joined uh, today uh, by uh, a long-time uh, contributor, Dr. Abdul Alim. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning, Dr. Alim. Good morning, Thank you for having me. And uh, also by Khalil Yusuf. Assalamu alaikum and good morning, Khalil. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. I think for the most part, there's really only one thing for us to discuss uh, today, certainly for the first hour of today's program, and and that is the um, extremely uh, unsettling and uh, painful situation which is happening currently in the Middle East. And by way of uh, summary, um, a few days ago we saw Hamas, a Palestinian, a Palestinian militant group, uh, which has been in conflict with Israel for a few decades now. They began an attack on the 7th of October um, against um, against Israel, and the attack resulted in hundreds of deaths and, uh, and is uh, the latest in a long line of conflicts between, um, between the two. The Israeli Defense Force responded with airstrikes on Gaza City and called up army reservists. The, the conflict has escalated since then with both sides uh, suffering casualties. Um, and as the conflict has been going on for a week now with no signs of abating, the situation has escalated to the point where Israel is considering a ground invasion of Gaza. The international community has expressed concerns over the situation with many calling for an immediate ceasefire. The conflict inevitably has had significant humanitarian consequences. Thousands, uh, tens of thousands of people have been displaced from their homes due to the violence and the reports of shortages of food and medical supplies in Gaza. The United Nations has called for an urgent humanitarian response to the crisis. This extremely painful situation, of course, um, it, it, it is often said that the situation uh, in the Middle East, the situation in and around Israel is, is complex. Uh, it's often labeled as being complex, but it may be complex, complex but it, it deserves our attention. It deserves us thinking about um, the problem, talking about the problem, and, and trying to frame the problem as, as well as we can uh, in a way which settles on the the, the rights of individuals uh, and the rights of communities to be able to exist peacefully and coexist peacefully. Here at Voice of Islam, we of course utterly condemn violence on on both sides and the, and the loss of uh, innocent lives. Um, I'm going to read a press release from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, which went out on the 13th of October on Friday um, and uh, expresses the the words and um, and thoughts of the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth Khalif, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed. And um, he said that um, we condemn the killing of innocent civilians on both sides in the war between Hamas and Israel uh, and His Holiness expressed his fear that the situation could continue to spiral out of all control. 
Speaking during his Friday sermon at the Mubarak Mosque in Islamabad, Tilford in the UK, on the 13th of October 2023, His Holiness urged the Muslim world to set aside their differences in order to raise a voice for those innocent Palestinians who have no link to terrorism or or extremism, and said that major powers should prioritize de-escalation and finding a just solution to the conflict. Hazrat Mirza Musroor Ahmed said, for the past few days a war has ensued between Hamas and Israel. As a result, women, children and the elderly have been killed and are continuing to lose their lives without any distinction. Reminding Muslims of the Islamic injunction, Hazrat Mirza Musroor Ahmed said, even in a state of war, Islam does not permit the killing of women, children, elderly and innocent civilians. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, gave strict instructions against doing so. In this recent escalation of the war, Hamas made the first move and attacked Israeli citizens, leaving aside for a moment the fact that innocent people have been unjustly killed by the Israeli army. Muslims should ensure that they always adhere to the teachings of Islam. Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed continued, where, uh, where the Israeli army has carried out injustices, that is on them, and there are better and lawful ways to address that. If there is a legitimate state of war, it should be entirely limited to the respective armies and never against innocent women, children, elderly and civilians. In this respect, the action Hamas took must be condemned. Speaking of the actions of the Israeli military, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed said, whatever injustice and cruelty Hamas committed, the response to that or war should have been restricted to Hamas. However, the indiscriminate response of the Israeli government is extremely dangerous, and it seems that this conflict will not end here. In fact, it cannot even be imagined how many innocent women, children, elderly and civilians will lose their lives. The Israeli government has suggested that it will destroy Gaza, and to this end they have carried out severe and overwhelming bombardment. They have turned the city to dust. Now, the most recent development is that the Israeli government is telling a million or so people to leave northern Gaza immediately. Speaking of the reaction of the United Nations, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed said, Thankfully, albeit with much hesitation, the United Nations is at least now raising a faint voice in response to this development. They have said it is against human rights and would create huge problems, and so Israel should think about their decision. Rather than unequivocally saying that, the, that it is wrong, and instead of taking a stronger stance, the United Nations is making mere requests. His Holiness again reminded of the fact that innocent children dying on both sides is completely wrong, and the world should not forget that Palestinian children are as innocent as the children in Israel. His Holiness also reminded of the teachings of the Jewish faith in relation to wars, and said that the teachings of the people of the book is clear that killing innocent people is impermissible, and that where Israel says that Hamas is killing innocent people, it should see its own actions and judge whether it falls in line with its own religious teachings. His Holiness also reminded of the fact that for a long period of time, he has been urging major world powers to leave aside dishonest behavior while establishing absolute justice, regardless of where their own interests lie. If His Holiness said they had done so, the situation in Palestine and Israel would not reach this critical stage. 
Speaking of how the emphasis to take any action is against is all against the Palestinians, His Holiness mentioned that there is news that the armed forces of several countries from around the world are preparing to come to the region. Against the Palestinians and major Western powers are also preparing harsh measures measures against the Palestinians, whilst setting aside the principles of justice. His Holiness highlighted the double standards in this conflict by mentioning how there are video reports of videos and imagery showing innocent Israeli women and children being harmed, which have garnered much sympathy from people. Later, when it has come to light that those innocent women and children were in fact Palestinians, there is no similar level of sympathy to be found in the media for them. Speaking of this, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed said, Such people only care for the rule of might is right, and they simply bow to those who hold strength and power in the world. If one analyzes this, it seems that major powers are bent upon inciting war rather than ending it. Speaking of the role of the United Nations in establishing justice, His Holiness recounted how the League of Nations failed as a result of failing to implement justice, which led to World War II, in which tens of millions of people were killed. Now His Holiness said, The United Nations too is failing to establish justice and is heading in the same direction. Regarding the possible destruction that could easily easily result from this war, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed said, An ordinary person cannot even imagine the war that may now ensue as a result of the injustices that have been seen. The major powers know the intensity of the damage it will cause, yet they are not interested in establishing justice and are unwilling to pay heed. Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed reminded the Muslim governments of their responsibilities and said, In these circumstances, the Muslims should pay heed. They must set aside their differences and must establish their unity in order to better their relationships with the people of the book. If Allah has given them the, has given the commandment to the Muslims to call them towards a word equal between us and you by uniting over the unity of God, then Muslims who have the same creed should unite between themselves even more so by setting aside their differences. They should ponder over this and should establish their unity. This is the only way of removing injustice from the world and fulfilling the obligations of justice and establishing the rights of the oppressed. In order to do so, the Muslims must raise a strong voice in unison whilst coming together for those that are downtrodden across the world. Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed further stated, If the Muslims unite and are one, they will have a strong and impactful voice. Otherwise, the Muslim governments would be responsible for the deaths of innocent Muslims. Always keep the saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, in mind. And this should be borne in mind by the major powers as well, that we must help both the oppressor and the oppressed. We must understand the importance of this injunction. Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed prayed and said, May Allah guide the Muslim powers so that they may unite in order to establish true justice. May the major world powers of the world also be granted right-mindedness, so that instead of taking the world towards destruction, they try to save it. They should not make it their objectives to simply fulfill their selfish desires. They should always remember that if and where there is destruction, the major powers too will not be safe from it. His Holiness said, 
that the only weapon Ahmadi Muslims possess and turn to is that of prayers, and so urge Ahmadi Muslims to use this spiritual weapon more than ever. Hazrat Mirza Musroor Ahmed said, May Allah give sense to Hamas as well. May they not become the reason for the injustices against their own people, and may they not carry out barbaric cruelties and injustices against others. If they are to fight, then they should do so in the light of the just principles of Islam, wherein an enmity of a nation should not incite us to act otherwise than with justice. This is the commandment of Allah the Almighty. May Allah enable the major powers to fulfill the obligations of justice on both sides of the conflict in order to establish peace. It should not be that they become lenient towards one side at the cost of the other. May they not increase in injustice and may we see peace with our eyes in the world. That was um, the words of the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed. Um, and that was a, a press release which came out on Friday, the 13th of October. And uh, the the situation, I'd invite uh, Dr. Aleem first, the situation that we can see at the moment in in um, uh, between Israel and, and Hamas is, is extremely painful. The, the, the words of His Holiness obviously ring so true. And, and in our discussions today, um, we'd like to center around the principles of justice, the the idea of uh, human rights for 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 all, um, and uh, reflecting on on that through justice, um, and and that innocent lives, wherever they may be in the world, um, should be protected, and and the rights of individuals in Israel and in uh, Gaza um, need to be. Uh, need to be looked at uh, carefully and and protected at 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 all costs, and there can be no justification by uh, any group, by any nation, uh, in harming um, uh, innocent individuals, uh, even in a state of war, even in a state of conflict, no matter what the perceived justifications may be. Uh, Dr. Leem, your initial thoughts on this. Yes, absolutely. I think that um, the statement of the head of the Ahmadiyya movement essentially says it all. Um, and uh, we are just here to elaborate on some of the finer points of detail, um, which he didn't, of course, have, have time to say. But I think that in principle, uh, he essentially describes um, the point of the official point of view of the Ahmadiyya movement. Um, I think that uh, let's get some of the things out of the way before we proceed um, so that uh, people are clear. First of all, uh, we have to clarify that nothing that we say uh, should or or be perceived as being anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. Um, we have nothing against the state of Israel's existence. Uh, you know, we all know now that Israel is a is a established fact and uh, there is nothing that can be gained out of saying that a state should be eliminated or or exterminated um, that is uh, not uh, our view we uh, we are our MBA movement members live in peace in israel and have been living there since the existence of that state so for, for, from a community point of view uh, we have nothing against the state of israel um, and also, uh, you know, given our own experience of Ahmadiyya movement in Pakistan, where we see that a confluence of uh, state 
interference in religion and politicizing of religion has played uh, ha played havoc with a uh, sense of community and nation and, and fragmentation. Um, there is also an issue of uh, how um, some identities are formed, uh, which then use religion to justify violence. And in our case, of course, we are a victim of justification of violence on us by other Muslims saying that we are not Muslims and therefore we are targeted and killed and persecuted in almost all Muslim countries. So hmm. we are the first ones to stand up and say nobody should be persecuted for their belief, for their identity, for uh, being a citizen of a country. At whatever age they are, their life and honor is protected. And this is what the Holy Prophet Sallallahu last sermon said uh, very clearly uh, included in the Charter of Medina earlier and in his, uh, near his death. He said that the life and property of everyone around you, including your neighbors and your brothers, is as sacred as that day of the month where he was standing on Mount Arafat delivering his sermon. So human life is precious, and the Quran uh, really emphasizes that by saying that mm -hmm. you know uh, each human is a universe in itself, and killing of one person is killing of a whole universe. Um, so, yes, the sacredness the, the sacred of life is really, really important for us. So, uh, so the thing with, that we say should be misconstrued and misunderstood as uh, supporting a view that mm -hmm. looks like or seems to be, uh, you know, misinterpreted as, uh, as justifying anything that is based on violence. And I agree with you that uh, uh, the head of the movement has condemned the death of the Israelis on that side and the violent action of uh, Hamas. And that is really what we also believe. Uh, but I, I do believe that we need to uh, understand and let's get out of the way what mistakes Muslims have made in how things have moved so far mm. so we can concentrate on where do we go from here and what is now happening in, in Gaza and West Bank. Um, you know, in late 1880s, uh, the movement of Zionism started, basically, and uh, the Ottoman Empire and the discussions between the Zionists in late 1800s uh, uh, started leading to a situation where uh, Jews, uh, Jewish people from different parts of the world, uh, including living in Europe, felt very unsafe and wanted to look for a homeland for themselves. And this led to the rise and the uh, initiation of a movement called Zionism, which is where Jewish religion was used to um, uh, conceptualize an identity of a nation and a state. And a move was started to try and resettle uh, the Jewish nation in the lands uh, which were not in Europe, but uh, at some point in time they were thoughts about settling them in Africa or in other places because there was an issue with saying that this nation has not found a piece of land to live peacefully uh, since they were left, since they were sort of uh, turned out of uh, Palestine 2,000 years ago by Rome, uh, by the Romans. And so uh, this is uh, qu quite an old, uh, uh, you know, historically significant issue that started in the late 1800s mm. and finally found some sympathy in, in Britain in the Balfour Declaration where uh, a right of, of the uh, Jewish people to have a state was, was sort of recognized and formalized. And, uh, and a movement of uh, many of the Jewish people started uh, into Palestine. 
and the Ottomans tried to, you know, tried to regulate around it and and uh, did give rights uh, to the Jews, Jewish people, to stay in Ottoman Empire. And you know that Muslims have always protected the Jewish people. Uh, the empire, the Andalusian Empire of the Muslims was known for its tolerance and coexistence of Jewish people in their own, in that empire. Mm. And the Ottomans were, were very protective of the Jewish people. They allowed them to stay, but there was a condition made by the Ottoman Empire that the Jewish people will not settle in the area that was under the Ottoman Empire and was called Palestine. They were allowed to become subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but due to the inefficiencies of the declining uh, Ottoman power and uh, its debt to the Western world, it did become clear that gradually many of the people found their way into Palestine and started establishing themselves. There was, of course, a collusion between the local Palestinian uh, landlords and those who were coming in, and there were deals made on buying land. So this is how it started, basically. And most of the land that was earlier bought uh, was small uh, pieces of land that were bought, and that started laying down the formation of sort of an early state of Israel in uh, in uh, late uh, in mid 1900s, when the World War broke out and you know the German Holocaust started, and that uh, killed about six million Jews. And I believe the Western world became very uh, uh, very worried about the fact that they were unable to protect the Jewish people in their midst and had now sympathy for trying to find a place for them. Now, of course, there's always a debate about why uh, Palestine and why not another place, but uh, essentially the decision was made that the Western world will support, including in, including, the, including Britain, that they would try and settle uh, Jewish people in what is now called Israel. And that's what led to the formation of Israel, and of course we all know that the wars of 1948, 1967, and 1973 basically were fought and lost on uh, the Arabs not recognizing Israel and trying to uh, you know, stop that process. And they lost, and Israel has then sort of expanded uh, since then uh, with its policy of settlements. And, and of course, under the international law, these settlements are illegal. And uh, the United Nations has, uh, has many, many resolutions that have consistently pointed out that this is, uh, these uh, settlements and their expansion is illegal. Um, so I think that the current, uh, current conflict uh, needs to be really understood in this historical context. And we should realize that uh, here human lives are involved on both sides. And, uh, and uh, somehow we need to make sure that uh, absolute justice is done in terms of uh, what really happens um, moving into the future. Thank you, Dr. Aleem, for those initial thoughts. And um, you know, really helpful to hear that bit of historical context as well around the um, the establishment of, of Israel as a as a nation state and uh, and obviously a, ve- a very painful history for the Jews you can you know it it, it is uh, pretty clear and Khalil bring bring you in here it's pretty pretty clear that this this is a uh, a group of people who over over many centuries have been looking for a place where they could um, uh, peacefully coexist and it, an interesting reflection from Dr. Lim that the that, that often in the context of um, the last 2,000 years, it was um, within um, Islamic empires that Jews were allowed to um, uh, thrive and, and have their own uh, communities and, and live live peaceably. 
Yes, um, it's a it's a really horrible situation. Obviously, this conflict has been going on now for many many years. But what is common amongst Jews and Muslims is that both of their faiths, both of their religions, prohibit them from acting in a manner that is unjust, mm. and that they should, on both sides, always act with justice, including in times of war. And I think that uh, both sides, whether that's Muslims or whether that's Jews, would be wise to consider that, because if they don't, then it is really their own people that suffer. It is civilians that are the biggest victims of this conflict, whether that is in Israel or whether that is in the occupied territories. And I think it is incumbent upon not just the parties, but also those Muslim countries around uh, Palestine and indeed the wider world to focus very much on trying to find a way through this seemingly intractable conflict so that we can have justice at the end so that each side, all people, can live in peace and comfort and security. And that really needs to be the focus of everybody at this time. Thank you, Khalil. And, and just drilling into some of the detail, and, and you've quite rightly emphasized and, and pointed out, and, and these really are the, 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 we are reflecting on the words of His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, in terms of, of what he said on this, that both Islam and Judaism, at the at one of their as one of their core principles, has the idea that we must act with with justice, and that even in a state of war, there are rules, and those rules include the fact that innocent individuals must be protected, and those who are not directly involved in conflict must be protected. And and His Holiness did not in any way justify the actions of any group uh, or say that this the that any actions of war were were um, permissible however if an individual group were, were to believe that their right to wage war was justified they ought to still act within the principles of their faith in acting with justice and not killing innocent individuals and i think you know and and at this point i, I would say very clearly in case what we've said so far is, is has not been clear that um, the actions of Hamas in the killing of innocent individuals in Israel um, is abominable and and must be condemned. It's wrong. It is simply wrong, and uh, and very sadly over the last uh, many years. Uh, Hamas has has continued in terms of the actions that it has taken to to target indiscriminately innocent individuals in Israel, and there is no and cannot be any justification for that. Um, and we can talk in the historical context about the oppression of the Palestinian people, um, and I think. But but that again, that is not a justification for the for the actions of Hamas, and I think it's really interesting in that respect to re, to reflect on uh, something His Holiness also said, which is um, he he was 
talking about this this very matter, and he said the ambassador of Palestine in the UK was interviewed by the BBC and in response to a question said that Hamas is a militant group, not the government, and that the Palestinian government has nothing to do with them. He also raised a valid question that if true justice had been established, then this situation would not have arisen. If world powers do not have double standards, then such disorder and warfare can never even occur. Thus, uh, we should end these double standards and wars will end themselves. Um, and and I think those, those are incredibly, incredibly powerful words uh, that there is no there's no justification and the, and the palestinian people are um utterly oppressed and utterly powerful powerless in 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 this situation to give to give voice they they are not hamas they they do not support hamas hamas is not a is not a legitimate political organization in in this context and uh, the the innocent people both in in um uh, Palestine and, and in Israel are the ones that are bearing the the brunt of this, but ultimately, the responsibility for ensuring that this type of conflict and warfare is brought to an end, he placed very firmly at the feet of the international community in saying that they must act with justice and justice, and if they did. Uh, and again, if true justice had been established, then this situation would not have arisen. Uh, Dr. Aleem, just bringing bring you in in here, and and again a, a little bit of a repetition of what we we've, we've said. But in case anyone is under any any doubt about about this, both in terms of the actions of Hamas in targeting innocent civilians, and of the Israeli army in targeting and killing innocent individuals, both of those must be condemned and are condemned by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and here by us on, on Voice of Islam. There is absolutely no question about that. Indeed, unequivocally. I think that, um, just to reiterate what you had said, um, you know, uh, people and organizations should be held by their own standards. And, uh, you know, if in any case, uh, you know, we believe that Hamas here at this moment does not represent either Islam or the people of Palestine, uh, because if it did, it should have listened to the famous decree of the first caliph of, uh, of Islam after the Holy Prophet, who, when he was dispatching his military commander, because uh, you know that Muslim Empire in its early days was threatened by the Byzantinians and the Persian empires, uh, so when he was dispatching his military commander to fight a defensive war, he said uh, to him, and I quote, uh, Stop, O people, that I may give you ten rules for guidance on the battlefield. Do not commit treachery or deviate from the right path. You must not mutilate dead bodies. Do not kill a woman, a child, or an aged man. Do not cut down fruitful trees. Do not destroy inhabited areas. Do not slaughter any of the enemies, sheep, cow, or camel, except for food. Do not burn date palms, nor inundate them. Do not embezzle, no misappropriation of booty or spoils of war, nor be guilty of cowardliness. You are likely to pass by people who have devoted their lives to monastic services. Leave them alone. 
According to the Islamic tradition, Muslim rulers have a right and even obligation to suspend the law in the interest of justice. In addition, evidentiary standards of many Islamic laws are so high that they should, in principle, rarely be implemented. Now, many um, judicial and legal experts have looked at uh, these laws of war, which were uh, essentially enunciated almost 1,400 years before the Geneva Conventions mm. uh, were formulated. And, uh, you know, they are still surprised by how progressive these rules of war are, actually. Uh, so humanity came together under the UN and passed the Geneva Conventions in 1951, but Islam and its uh, successors of the Holy Prophet had already enunciated these. And I go back again to what you were saying that the 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 the, the, Ahmadiyya movement, the head of the Ahmadiyya movement said in his sermon. Uh, essentially, the fact that uh, uh, we can we cannot really hold Hamas to either being Islamic or representative of, of its people, so it is very difficult to say what Hamas did or did not do was according to their own constitution or they were only their own different definition of their own standards. We don't know what their standards are. They are a militant uh, organization. Uh, but in response, what is happening is that there is a state representative army that represents the state of Israel is actually inflicting disproportionate harm on Palestinian people. And, and that has to be held to law and to the uh, to the uh, high standards that nation states are to be held according to Geneva Conventions. And that is why we now believe that there is a room to say that this uh, uh, disproportionate use of force is not justified in the current context. So I believe that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, this whole discussion about uh, uh, this, being a, uh, this being a conflict needs to, evolve, needs to be also contextualized. Uh, you, you know, the UN has already, and the International Report on Human Rights and Against Torture has just come out and said that, uh, you know, many reports of the UN have already said that Israel actually uh, has, has, is guilty of illegal occupation of Palestinian land, and that, uh, that it needs to withdraw to its uh, earlier borders, uh, and uh, and anything to justify that is also not again, uh, not uh, according to absolute justice. Uh, and we need to also take that into cognizance when we talk about the fact that uh, this does seem to be now going in a direction which looks like, um, uh, you know, really uh, dangerous to both the world peace and, of course, uh, hugely, um, uh, hugely, uh, with a huge cost to the Palestinian people who are innocent civilians and children. And the images coming out of Gaza, and of course, uh, we do not forget the children and people who were killed in Israel at the same time. But now the images coming out of Gaza is not serving either Israel or the Western nations who are now supporting uh, or have basically stayed silent uh, on the uh, on the current, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, disproportionate uh, uh, steps that Israel is taking uh, to leading to almost uh, you know crimes against humanity on both sides and this I believe is now the worry that we have where it does seem that the current um, you know situation will get out of control and uh, you know many commentators have already talked about the fact that this is the second flashpoint for a third world war so we are looking down the abyss that we have talked about earlier on in our programs where it does seem that the ambition of certain people and misunderstandings and use of religion for political purposes and for 
you know, for intensifying nationalist sentiments uh, across the world is, uh, is, is actually getting out of hand. On both sides, I think this is a problem where I believe that some, uh, uh, some uh, movements for liberation have become, um, uh, have been called or changed into representing Islam. You know, I give, an ex I give my own experience in Philippines where uh, there was a struggle for independence in the South of Philippines by the Moro Liberation Front. Um, now, initially, Moro Liberation Front remained uh, totally secular and was about the rights of the Moro people in the Southern Philippines. But when they found uh, that they were unsuccessful in making their case, and they were started, uh, they were funding that is that was coming from Muslim countries. They changed their name to Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And then, of course, uh, you know, the people uh, in, in many parts of the world start getting worried because, you know, Islam has been portrayed as a violent religion. And, of course, movements like Hamas and more Islamic liberation front do not serve any purpose to Islam. But the fact is that uh, because of the lack of communication and lack of education of the people in the West and many other parts of the world where they don't fully understand Islam and can only see Islam through the media that portrays uh, these movements to be representing Islam uh, become really, really worried about what is going on and they really feel afraid and, you know, there is then this whole movement of persecution and an and mass mobilization against Muslims and Islamophobia that we all see in, in many parts of the world, including the Western world. So I think that this issue gets a bit more complex than what we had initially started with and it does seem to be, uh, you know, taking a shape where every uh, person who fears God and, you know, uh, worries about humanity should be really, really concerned about it. Thank you, Dr. Leem. And, and I guess in, in all of this discussion, when we, we talk about the fact that there are injustices on both sides, cruelty, um, a lack of uh, any, any sort of um, thought for the rights of, of innocent individuals, um, by, um, by, by parties who are perpetrating on both sides who are perpetrating these these very painful elections, then, you know, we we have to think. So, what, what, where does the world community sit on this, and how can they action uh, in order to condemn and, and in order to try and bring um, uh, uh, both both sides to some sort of resolution? We have the United Nations, of course, and, and within the, the framework of the United Nations, we have the International Courts of Justice, the top UN court for dealing with disputes between countries. And the, the ICJ has, has looked at the situation between um, Israel and Palestine, um, and they have been looking very carefully at... at uh, uh, at this situation to 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 try and um uh, frame some of the problems it it is i mean it's it's we we know that the united nations has found that aspects of the occupation as you said are illegal um uh and 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 that uh, as i said the icj has um ha has looked into this in in detail Khalil bringing bringing you in here and on this question I don't. I don't want us to get into a a question of what should or shouldn't the ICJ do, the International Courts of Justice, what they should or shouldn't do. 
but talking more generally about the international community. And, and we are obviously also going to ask the question of Muslim countries as well. What are the right actions here? What should the international community be doing um, in this in this context, and what should Muslim nations be doing in this context to try and bring about a peaceable solution to this situation? Um, so the facts at the moment are this: uh, near enough two thousand people on both sides uh, have already been killed. If you compare that to the deaths in 9-11, I think there were 2,977 people that were killed on the horrific uh, terrorist attack of 9-11. And that resulted really in a, in a global change in how we view terrorism and how we prevent further terrorist attacks from happening. We're already at around 2,000 people in Israel and Palestine. And that's before the thousands of people that are gathered at the border of northern Palestine, soldiers, IDF soldiers, have entered into that territory. And the likelihood is that the this figure of 2,000 people already killed is likely to rise significantly as soon as a ground assault begins. The other facts that we know are that at the moment, uh, you've got one million people that had been asked to move from uh, northern Palestine to the south, and that by most people's accounts, that is a near impossible task. We also know that most of the hospitals in the south of Gaza are already at capacity. The health system is on the brink of collapse. Morgues are overflowing, and that is all under the current situation of there being a water crisis, uh, food and water has been blockaded, the infrastructure has been damaged, there's no power, there's no desalinization plants, which means that there's a likelihood of disease. So those are the facts right now. And the question is, well, what should happen next? And in my view, it is important that the international community plays a very determined role in trying to secure peace. Because if it doesn't, then there's a real prospect that this could become a wider conflict with Lebanon becoming involved and then potentially Iran becoming involved and then this turning into a situation which is far less controllable. And so it is in the interests of the world as a whole that we bring about a swift resolution to a dispute that's been going on for near enough 100 years. But this can be a turning point. You know, um, the Oslo Peace Accords in 1993 collapsed because settlements began to be built on the Israeli side and the PLO began to commit terrorist acts and uh, the Americans were not determined enough to try and force the Israelis to be able to come to the table and sign a peace accord. But now there is an opportunity to do that. And I think if the EU 
and the Americans and Britain combine on one side and the Muslim nations all combine on the other. You have a number of interested parties, all with a focus on peace, that can really bring about a resolution to this conflict. And that will, I am hopeful, mean for a much safer and more peaceful world. Thank you, Khalil. And I mean, you mentioned in there the this this very important idea that um, the the risk of of war crime on both sides, the risk of war crimes, and and therefore the risk the risk that there are significant breaches of international law, and those those breaches of international law must must be both recognised and and action should be taken. Um, against them, or should be a, a spur to action, um, and and clear and clearly, not fully bring you you in at this point. Clearly, the 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 questions uh, re- remain very open. That what are the what are the tools available to the international community in response to such breaches of of war crimes? Now, you know, I'm going to slightly interrupt yeah. you there because yeah. you, you know when we talk about war crimes. Determining war crimes requires a process of balanced investigation, yeah. and that takes time. The focus, in my view, is actually on preventing crimes in the first place, and that requires the international community to play a very strong role in highlighting the importance of international law, in saying that international law will be followed and that all crimes will be investigated, and regardless of uh, you know, there being allies on either side, that each international party will ensure that it pushes for a full investigation into war crimes, and as such, it, it presses its allies to make sure that they don't commit those war crimes in the first place. I mean, that really needs to be the focus. What we don't want to be in a position of is is war crimes happening and then having been investigated afterwards. And then there being some, you know, light sanction that that follows, if indeed there is a sanction, given that all parties to this conflict are not uh, parties to the ICJ. Thank you, Khalil, and thank thank you for that clarification. I think that that is a really important point and and something that I was um, alluding to in in respect of the concern about about war crimes and if there is an intent and and an apparent intent to commit war crimes and and independent organizations have uh, looked at uh, both uh, the actions of Hamas and the the stated intent of Israel for instance to cut off water electricity food to Gaza and and have said that these look to be shaping up to become war crimes again very very Clear. We're not saying that they are or are not. As you said, it requ- that requires a deliberation. But nonetheless, I guess the 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 point being, and Dr. Liam, to bring you in here, the point being that um, nations need to, and the international community needs to to look at this very very carefully and recognise um, that in in order to serve the principles of of justice and fairness. That they they need to be very careful about um, support that is shown on both sides for the actions of 
um, uh, individual players within within this conflict. Um, your your thoughts on that, Dr. Lee? Um, I, I agree, but I think that let's make a, a factual correction here. Actually, the water, electricity, and food has already been stopped in Gaza for the mm. last three days. Yeah. So let's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, we we, know, we already know that. And, you know, the United Nations uh, and UNICEF have certainly come out and said that on the Palestinian side, 700 children have been killed already. Um, we have verifications of that. Mm. We know that um, that Israel has actually uh, dropped leaflets yesterday, day before yesterday, in Gaza, where they were told to migrate towards south uh, and go towards the Rafah border in Egypt. Um, and uh, this was uh, an announcement that uh, 1.1 million people should actually move from the north to the south within a day and given 24 to 48 hours to move. And the UN has come out and the Secretary General has come out and said that's impossible. Uh, they have been asked to evacuate hospitals that is impossible to do in 24 hours. So essentially, this is, uh, this is uh, not bordering, but in fact, this is looking like uh, moving towards a situation of uh, uh, a violation of the international law. And uh, Israeli leaders have been interviewed on televisions, and this is now common knowledge on social media that they have defended their views on this. And uh, and apparently there is, of course, as Khalil has said, there's now a move with uh, many influential leaders on part uh, who are allied to Israel to try and restrain the situation from turning into a catastrophe uh, on a, or a mass scale extermination of Palestinian people. So I think that uh, I think that we are really in a very, very difficult and narrow window of situation right now. Uh, and uh, you know uh, we need to make sure that uh, that uh, the current international criminal court and all the other institutions that are responsible to govern the world uh, governance institutions do not meet the same fate as the League of Nations in 1945 and 1946. Um, uh, His Holiness, uh, uh, the head of the movement, has already said that there were failures of the UN earlier in the past. Um, uh, we, uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, the resolution in the U.S. Security Council that was in support of uh, the Palestinians was passed with unanimous majority. Uh, there was only one dissenting vote by the U.S., uh, which vetoed the resolution. Uh, so I think it does seem that the international community is coalescing around the fact that um, any disproportionate response to what Hamas has done uh, is not, uh, you know, a, a killing by Hamas and the barbarism by Hamas does not justify more barbarism and more killing by another party. And that is really clear uh, because that party has to be held to the standards, to the international humanitarian standards, which is a state party. And it is not a non-state party or a militant organization like Hamas. So I think that the international community is on the right grounds here. And we hope that this might work in this situation and uh, the UN will be able to bring people together and the influential international players, including the, uh, the, the, the players who are currently backing the right of Israel to defend, uh, should be able to say and bring some sense to the fact that this does not need to be a humanitarian disaster that it is turning out to be currently. Thank you, Dr. Aleem. And, and just in the last few minutes of the first hour of today's program, I'll... I'll Again, read some of the words of His Holiness Hazem Isa Masur, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim 
community in addressing um, Muslim nations around the world in respect of this awful crisis. Um, His Holiness said that, that war will take place now due to the current injustice and we can't even comprehend the destruction that will be caused and everyone knows this. Yet there is still no focus on establishing justice in the world, nor is anyone highlighting this point. But in addressing Muslim nations, he said that at least the Muslim nations should pay heed and erase their own disagreements in order to establish unity. If Muslims have been told in the Quran to improve relations with the people of the book, then why can Muslims who share the same kalima, that is declaration of faith, not place their problems aside and come together? This is the only way to rid the world of the disorder we see today. As one, Muslims must raise a voice against those who are oppressed. If there is unity in the Muslim ummah, there will be power in the voice that is raised. Otherwise, these Muslim nations will be responsible for the loss of innocent lives. We should keep the teachings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in front of us to aid both the oppressed and the oppressor by stopping them from oppression. Uh, Khalil, just to bring you in there and reflection on on those words of His Holiness in addressing Muslim nations and the responsibility that they bear um, in stopping this conflict. So, you know, they have a tremendous responsibility. Uh, You know, Muslims have a responsibility to look after and protect their brothers. And I think that there has been a vacuum in overt support for their Muslim brothers in the region for some time. That unity is really essential. And you'll see that actually on the Israeli side, since this conflict uh, or this most recent part of the conflict has kicked off almost a week ago, the Israelis have politically have all come together and we now have a unity government despite the Israeli political process often being so fractured with so many political parties and have demonstrated that they were able to put their differences aside and come together for the benefit of their nation. And I think that that, if nothing else, is a good example to other Muslim nations who should very much do the same and put aside their differences and come together, not in order to increase conflict, but actually in order to help to de-escalate conflict and to bring about a peaceful resolution and I pray they are able to do that. Thank you, Khalil. And um, Dr. Raleem, fi- final thoughts from you on this just in the last uh, couple of minutes. I mean, we, we the situation continues. We don't know where it's headed. There's a there's a risk of further escalation. Um, what what do we what do we hope and pray for in terms of a peaceful resolution here? Well, I think we can just end by um, the last sentences that His Holiness, the uh, head of the Amagay movement, mentioned in his Friday sermon, that this is really a, a very time to intensely pray for the humans, for humanity, basically, and that uh, the things that could not be done with reason and with institutions, um, that, uh, you know, God may prevent those things from happening, which lead to more human suffering. And certainly, uh, uh, you know, to resolve things in a way where this doesn't really uh, escalate to a point where it does look like a second flashpoint for the Third World War, and then 
the disaster that awaits humanity, uh, you know, uh, during that process. So I believe that his call for prayers for all religions, all people, all religious people who fear God should be heeded to. And I hope that that's what people will do uh, and pray in earnest for uh, the solution to be resolved uh, through, uh, even, in fact, uh, divine intervention, because humanity seems to be failing in solving this problem. Thank you, Dr. Leem. And, and just to read those words, um, a transcript of, of the words of His Holiness in, in that Friday sermon, uh, in the end, um, he prayed, May Allah the Almighty grant wisdom and understanding to the Muslim governments, and may they unite to uphold justice. May he also grant wisdom and understanding to the powers of the world, so that instead of causing destruction in the world, they strive to save it from destruction. It should always be remembered that when destruction occurs, even though these powers will not remain secure. The only weapon we possess is the weapon of prayer. And addressing Ahmadi Muslims around the world, he said, Thus, more than before, all Ahmadis, all Ahmadi Muslims, should use the weapon of prayer. And if there is any one weapon that we want to see used in, in, in any way, it, it should be it should be that and uh, uh, and advocating for peace and advocating for justice um, wh- wherever we see um, conflict of any sort and when, wherever we see injustice of any sort. So, uh, coming up to the end of the first hour of of today's program, I'd like to thank Dr. Abdul Aleem for his participation in in this program. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, Dr. Aleem. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Khalil, uh, thank you very much for the first half of the program. Hopefully you'll, you'll stay with us and we will have Mahmoud uh, Ahmed, um, our American correspondent, for the second hour of the program. Uh, thank you to all of you for, for listening to us here on Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. And uh, uh, in, a, in a very short time, we will have the news. And just remember, you can always uh, tweet at us at Voice of Islam UK. So let us know your opinions and thoughts on the discussions uh, that we are having this morning. And uh, stay tuned to Voice of Islam Radio. Thank you very much for listening. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Asalaamu Alaikum. Good morning and welcome back to the second hour of our program here, Weekend World, on the Voice of Islam Radio. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 15th of October, 2023. And if you joined us during the first hour of the program, you would have heard Dr. Abdul Aleem and Khalil Yusuf and myself discussing the uh, emergent and painful situation occurring between Israel and and, uh, Palestine, Uh, Israel and Hamas, the ongoing conflict and, and the consequences for innocent individuals on both sides. Um, so very, very, very painful, and we had a very good discussion centered around the words of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, in calling for justice on, on both sides. We're very lucky in the second hour of the program to be joined by Mahmoud Ahmed, our American correspondent. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning, Mahmoud. Assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud. Can you hear me? Uh, I can, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Apologies, I didn't press the right button there. Mahmoud, uh, um, it is, uh, it's far earlier in the morning for you than it is for me, so there's, I have absolutely no excuse. Uh, Mahmoud, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning. Um, always a pleasure to have you on. Likewise. Very nice to be here. 
And we still have Khalil uh, Youssef um, uh, on on the line as well. Khalil, uh, thank you for uh, continuing to participate in in today's program. And um, Mahmoud, I'm, I'm sure we can reflect on the situation uh, in the Middle East in in the context of um, U.S. news. But I'd I'd like to start with with something a, a little bit more. I'd like to say mundane, but it's it's surely it's not mundane. There's a little bit of. Um, of uh, a political situation happening at the moment in in the US, which you're going to have to explain to us, um, because um, I, I, for one, I'm struggling to understand. Um, what wh- What is the importance of the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, and, and why is there um, so much chaos going on at the moment around this political race? Yes, it's a, it's a fascinating issue, and, and, uh, and obviously also relevant to the Middle East uh, conflict in the sense that um, it's preventing, I would say, action by the United States Congress mm. on that issue um, while it's pending. So this is a, a quirk of, of the U.S. political system where you know we have a, 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 a bicameral legislature and the House of Representatives is the uh, you know equivalent of your House of Commons, I would think, in, in the U.K. and, and it's, it's uh, intended to be the people's voice, uh, you know, uh, uh, 500 plus elected representatives and the speaker of the house is a incredibly powerful position uh the uh, um uh, uh, powers and authorities of which is actually spelled out in the constitution itself uh and without the speaker being in place having been duly elected by the members of the house the house really cannot take any meaningful action it cannot hold votes on anything meaningful or substantive certainly cannot pass legislation. And so it becomes paralyzed if the speaker's chair is vacant, as they say. And that's not something that you and I would have been having a conversation about even, let's say, a couple of weeks ago, because it hasn't happened in, 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 in more than 100 years. Uh, and yet, um, when um, the, the speaker, most, most recent speaker, Mr. Kevin McCarthy, uh, was elected speaker uh, back in, in January when the Republicans um, took control of the House from the Democrats. Um, the Republicans hold only a very slim majority in the House, and they were having great difficulty agreeing upon one of themselves to become a speaker. And ultimately, Mr. McCarthy became a speaker, but one of the concessions that he had to make when he became speaker is that he allowed even one member of his conference to challenge his speakership uh, um, if, 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 if that was, was something that, that, that somebody wanted to do, uh, and, and if only one person said, you know, I want to change in speaker, they could bring a motion uh, to, to vacate the speakership. And that's exactly what happened. There was a congressman from uh, Florida, uh, his name is Matt Gates, uh, who represents, you know, what you would consider a, a, a fringe, uh, uh, far right type wing, um, uh, part of that Republican conference, uh, very close to former President Trump, uh, uh, and he brought a motion uh, in the wake of the government shutdown that was imminent. Uh, Mr. McCarthy had made a, a deal with the Democrats in the House and with President Biden to avert that shutdown, and that was not something that Mr. Gates liked, and so he decided to try to unseat um, a speaker from his own party. And uh, uh, what was surprising to many is that he succeeded in doing so. Uh, he, he succeeded in persuading eight of his colleagues to vote with him. Uh, and because the Republicans' majority is so small, uh, that was enough 
to, to flip the votes against Mr. McCarthy, and Mr. McCarthy lost the speakership. And as a result now for, you know, well over, I think, six weeks now, uh, the U.S. House has been without um, a speaker. And um, thank, thank you for that. And as you said, this, this has consequences because it is such an important um, political role. It has consequences for uh, the situation in the Middle East and, and and in terms of American foreign policy and an ability to, to do anything. Khalid, just bring, bring you in here. I mean, I, th- I think it, it traditionally it's always been said that America is the world's uh, p- policeman. Um, I think uh, people on the other side of... Uh, of uh, the 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 political debate or or or, a, or, or on the other side of an understanding of uh, international relations might might disagree quite with that but nonetheless america is a significant uh, political and military power around the world and its voice is incredibly important in respects of calming down uh, escalating situations, and as we discussed in the first hour of the program, that's something that that many are hoping to see in terms of fem- firm leadership from the United States. Um, what what do, what are your uh, thoughts on on this situation and what the consequences might be? I'm not sure that it is entirely possible to simplify this issue, but if I can try. Um, Ultimately, the reason why we are not able to find peace is because of what's known as creeping annexation. And what that means is that the Israelis continue to try and get control of the most amount of land as possible with the minimum amount of Arabs. And they have been doing that now for the last 50 years. And this recent now move into northern Gaza is a continued extension of that policy which has been applied dozens and dozens of times. And the reason why that is a problem is because most international commentators say that the only solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict is a two-state solution. That means that Israel has its own independent state and Palestine has its own independent state. And when Israel continues to creep across the borders and continues to assume control over Palestinian land, continues to build Jewish settlements, then what that does is it reduces the amount of land that is available to the Palestinians, makes it much more difficult for there to be a two-state solution because there isn't enough space or sufficient space for the Palestinians to occupy. So. The key issue now is to is to prevent this continued annexation of land. If we don't continue to prevent that, if we don't try and prevent that or don't try and address the settlements at the moment, it is not possible for there to be a two-state solution. And if there can't be a two-state solution, then it's very difficult for us to find peace. And so I think as I, I, I forgive me if I'm repeating myself somewhat, but I think that, that needs to be the focus of the international community, which is that how do we now reinvigorate the peace process? How do we focus on finding a solution that meets the objectives of all parties? But ultimately, that is going to have to involve the Israelis stopping this process of increase of uh, continued creeping annexation, 
so that they can give back some of that land to the Palestinians and each party can have their own state. So as difficult as that might be, I think that really needs to be the focus of the international community as a whole. Thank you for that, uh, Khalil and, and Mahmoud. Bringing you back on on this particular point, and I mean, you re- you reflected on on the impact that this could have potentially on the hopes of peace um, in the Middle East. I mean, your and your thoughts on on that. I mean, uh, uh, Khalil's put it very very clearly in terms of the the necessary concerns of both sides and how, in the in the name of justice, the only way in which um, the Palestinians can be ensured that they have uh, uh, both the right right of self determination, um, human rights, the right rights of of freedom, freedom of movement, and and the ability to build themselves up as a nation and develop as a nation is is to have um, uh, that that element of uh, political freedom and and um, the institution of a of a nation. All parties need to get around the table to achieve that, and um, clearly that is going to be an ongoing issue at the moment as far as the United States and their focus is concerned on this matter. Absolutely. I mean, I you know, what's been really interesting about the um, uh, discourse in the United States um, in the wake of these uh, incredibly painful and, and tragic events, as, as as you've noted, is the um, you know that the, the timing of of, of of the attacks and 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 of of what has happened, because in the United States there are two things that are happening right now, and 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 one one is a longer term um, trend, and the other is a is a more recent development um, that that is sort of shaping the discourse around this. Um, first. Um, as, as I think you, you know, you, you may have covered elsewhere, uh, you know, before these attacks, um, you know, and, and, and the response from Israel, um, uh, there was a, a sort of a building momentum, um, which is very much being led by the United States government, um, by the Biden administration, building upon some work that had previously done by the Trump administration around normalizing relations between um, Israel and various um, um, Arab neighbors, uh, including notably um, Saudi Arabia. Um, in, in recent weeks, there had been a lot of news that that was uh, potentially imminent. Um, and there was a lot of attention being paid to what kind of provisions or guarantees uh, would be made by the government of Israel in relation to, as Khalil so eloquently articulated, uh, uh, pr- preserving the parameters for a viable, uh, in, independent uh, uh, Palestinian state that would meet the legitimate political aspirations uh, of the Palestinian people. Um, and everyone was sort of on their tiptoes to see what that would look like, um, given that, that Saudi Arabia presumably, uh, you know, seeing itself as, as, as sort of a uh, um, uh, guarantor of of, of 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 those types of freedoms, at least you know publicly, uh, you know what what would they extract um, from the government of Israel? Um, we we don't know because that deal hasn't been made, and of course these events that are unfolding uh, make it incredibly complicated to determine whether or not a deal like that will be made, or when it will be made, or what it will look like, given the uncertainty that now surrounds the issue. 
The other thing that is happening that has uh, spilled out in the wake of the attacks and, 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 and some of the rhetoric <clears throat> that has gone on um, around the response to it is a generational shift and a generational divide within the United States about this issue, um, the broader issue of uh, the respective rights and responsibilities of the, the, the people and governments of Israel and the people of, 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 of the Palestinians. Because you have historically seen in the United States almost, almost universal, um, unequivocal, unconditional support uh, for the government of Israel and its actions, uh, irrespective of context or of the aspirations of the Palestinian people. But increasingly, the younger generation, you would call millennials and, and Gen Z people who are roughly speaking under 45, have a very different view uh, uh, in, in the sense that they are far more sensitive and attuned to uh, the plight of the Palestinian people uh, and the need for their legitimate political aspirations to be met. And in the wake of this attack uh, and, 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 and the discussion around what that means for the region moving forward, that generational divide has been very apparent. Uh, in polling uh, uh, that has been done after the, uh, after the incident, as well as uh, uh, discussions in public discourse, uh, you know, all, all the way up to discussions at, at the US Congress level. And so, you know, I think it will be uh, incredibly interesting to see in the weeks and months ahead uh, what type of actions and, 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 and discussions come out of the United States because the United States is an incredibly powerful um, factor, particularly given that it has, you know, very large diaspora populations, both of uh, um, uh, uh, Jews with large connections to Israel, but also increasingly, uh, Palestinian Americans, Arab Americans, and you know, activists um, within within both the Arab American and the Jewish American communities who are who are attempting to find common ground and trying to determine what that long-term uh, peaceful coexistence solution will look like, uh, which has of course been made so much more difficult by what is going on right now. Thank you for that, Mahmoud, and and a really succinct and and clear um uh articulation of of that challenge and we can we can only hope that from that side of things the leadership roles on both sides and we discussed the importance of muslim nations um having taking a leadership role in this respect uh, and uh, and that both both sides should be able to come to the table now ho hopefully imminently in order to be able to settle things and to bring about a peaceful resolution of this situation. Changing tax a little bit now, and uh, you highlighted to us the situation that we currently see in the United States around strikes. And uh, here in the UK, we are no stranger to strikes. Uh, unfortunately, there have been plenty of strikes over the over the last few months, whether it's healthcare workers or railway uh, workers um strikes have been have been happening uh, in in many different sectors uh, i understand that that there in the united states we've seen strikes amongst um auto workers the united auto workers uh, union have have uh, or unions have um had a series of of strikes in order to uh try and push for better pay and conditions 
um, especially as they they argue that there have been stagnant wages there, a, a familiar refrain to to us here in the UK, uh, and uh, uh, and also I understand healthcare workers as part of the uh, the Kaiser Permanente group have have also been striking for for similar pay and conditions issues. Um, so, Mahmoud, your thoughts on this initially? The the how does this change any of the narrative currently within the United States around? Um, uh, both political power and the and the power of, of unions versus versus the power of uh, large corporations. Um, and do you think that there is a, a shift in the body politic around this question? It's it's a pretty big deal, actually. It's interesting. This year has been, I think, an inflection point in this regard. Um, um, it, it started actually, uh, interestingly enough, earlier in the year um, with the, um, the the strike that was launched by. Um, Hollywood workers, uh, um, mm. you know, both writers and actors. And the, uh, you know, while the actor strike actually continues, the writer strike um, ended just in the last couple of weeks uh, with very significant concessions um, having been made to writers by uh, uh, the, the the studios and so forth, uh, you know, around a number of issues, including, uh, you know, the way that they get compensated for their work in, in, a, in a very different streaming environment. Uh, um, uh, and also, for example, protections that they had requested with respect to um, not being supplanted by, by AI, mm. uh, uh, which, which is a, a new danger, right, that, that is also on the horizon for the writers. And they were incredibly successful, um, and they were being led by some very vocal uh, uh, leaders who had taken a very hard stance uh, and the strike had continued, you know, several months, far longer than, uh, than, than would have been the case historically, uh, where you would have seen, you know, work, work, workers sort of capitulate pretty quickly. And now, as you mentioned, you're seeing the same type of trend um, continue, right, with, with, with both healthcare workers and auto workers, which are, you know, large segments of, of, of the economy, um, and, and again, you know, the, 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 the change from the past, I would say, at least two decades where, you know, power of unions and workers had been rapidly declining is uh, a seemingly uh, a, a fairly sudden and to be determined, obviously, how sustained it is, but reversal um, of fortunes for workers and unions where they seem uh, far more uh, um, uh, able to uh, uh, carry on um, knowing that with a fairly tight labor market and in the wake of the COVID pandemic, uh, employers having trouble, uh, um, you know, uh, going out and, and just, just replacing these workers, uh, uh, that they have more bargaining power. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're starting to see some success. I, I think the healthcare workers are potentially having a, a, a deal that, that was recently um, taking shape and auto workers seemingly also having obtained a significant amount of what they want in the negotiations, but still not being satisfied and therefore holding out. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see how this, 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 this unfolds. Uh, and obviously with a, a, a political season coming up in the United States, uh, you know, ne next year, uh, uh, it will be interesting to see how it, how it reflects on that as well. One very notable development that was uh, commented upon is that President Biden actually made a trip um, to the picket line um, of the United Auto Workers, uh, which is something that a sitting president has, has not done in, in a very, very long time uh, and, and was not something that would have been expected, you know, e even, let's say, a few years ago. 
Um, and so, yes, this is an, an, an interesting development to watch in, in terms of the potential shifting fortunes uh, of, of, of unions uh, in the U.S., where for, for decades they had been uh, very much on, on, the, on, on the wane, uh, but, but, but potentially now making a comeback. Thank you for that, Mahmoud. And, and, and obviously part of this entire discussion is questions around economic growth and um, the, the capacity to be able to pay people more, and that's been a massive, massive issue here in the, in the UK as well. And Khalil, uh, we, we, we spoke at the, at the time of the, uh, of the last financial crisis, 2008-2009, uh, austerity, and tightening of belts we're all in this together all all of these catchphrases were bandied around and and now people are talking about austerity 2.0 there's nothing left in the in the coffers we can't possibly pay public sector workers more it's it's a i wouldn't say it's fascinating it's very painful because we have seen massive increases in um, poverty here in the UK as as a result of of declining living standards and and people not simply not being paid enough to be able to live a living a livable wage um, and and this um, uh, a, a worsening of this in, entire situation you know people talk about the cost of living as if as if barely living was the was you know it's an, an acceptable standard to be to be um, reflecting on rather than thriving you know should we not be talking about the co- the cost of thriving here look i mean islam, islam it, it works on a rules-based system mm. and what that means is that you don't just make it up as you go along so of course the economic climate is variable things change but if as an employer you have a responsibility for your employees that remains your responsibility regardless of the economic climate. And if you have a system where the the rules can very easily change and those in authority can dominate workers and take away their rights, and that's not something that you know is sanctioned in Islam. In fact, Islam gives a great focus to the rights of the worker. And uh, in the Holy Quran and in Hadith, it's very clear that actually workers' rights should be protected and that they should be paid fairly and that they should be paid promptly. So provided that uh, employers do that and the state keeps that in, in mind, then employees should also then work honestly for the benefit of their employer because that is a trust. They're being paid for something and they should fulfill that trust. In the event that uh, you know, workers are not being paid fairly, then I think they do have the right to protest, but they should do so in a in a way that doesn't cause disruption, and they should do so in a way that is intended to bring about a a fair outcome without creating unnecessary harm to anybody else. So I think that you know that, that focus on the Islamic system of fairness and justice, which has actually been a theme mm. throughout our uh, program today, mm. which is to ensure that you you don't dominate those workers and that you don't impose upon them unfair rules, and that they have clarity about the earnings that they mm. are to get and that those earnings are fair is the right way to go. Perfect. Thank you, Khalil, and, and thank you for rounding off the live segment of our program so very nicely with that 
call back to the important principle of justice. And I'd just like to end by thanking Mahmoud, Ahmed, and uh, Khalil Yusuf for participating in the second hour of the program. Thank you very much to both of you, and uh, hopefully speak to you again both soon. And uh, you're still listening to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam Radio. The time is 11.27, and we're coming up to the end of the live segment of today's program. And in the last half hour, we will have the opportunity to listen to uh, a narration of a book on the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and also from a piece by our colleagues at Rational Religion, regular contributors to our program here on Weekend World, and always good to, to listen to their thoughts as well. And so keep tuned and let's listen to that now. This is the second part in a narration of the book A Call to Faith by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed. A Call to Faith, Part 2 Attacks Against the Holy Prophet, Peace Be Upon Him. The blessed being of the Holy Prophet, Peace Be Upon Him, was so determined in his opposition to disbelief that anyone who possesses a hint of faithlessness in their heart harbours enmity against him. Such people consider it their duty to attack his pure being, for they reckon his success amounts to their downfall, and that his life brings about their death. Hence, no other prophet has been slandered to the same degree as the holy prophet, peace be upon him, has whether they are Arab, Syrian, Indian, or Persian. As I have mentioned, the enemies of Islam are compelled to malign its founder because Islam shatters their deception and fraud. After all, everyone cherishes their own life. More astonishing is the case of those who claim to love Islam, profess apparent faith in the Holy Qur'an, invoke peace and blessings on the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and yet do not hold back from attacking his character. They propagate such doctrines which dishonour the blessed personage of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and thereby turn the hearts of people away from his love. Time and again, some among them proclaim Jesus is still alive and resides in the fourth heaven with the same physical body, and one day he will descend from there and bring the people under his rule. Unfortunately, they fail to comprehend this is an insult to that prophet, to whose beneficence they owe everything, whom God Almighty ordained the greatest of all humanity, and whose spiritual power far exceeds that of the angels and all other human beings. 
they seek to confer higher rank and station on an individual who, if he had lived in the time of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, peace be upon him, would have prided himself on entering his servitude. It is an inexorable truth that no one has suffered more than the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, for the sake of God Almighty's religion. For thirteen years in Mecca, he endured such agony and torment that had it been inflicted on any other person, it would have broken them within a year. His loyal and devoted followers also persevered in the face of unbearable horrors. Conversely, the sacrifices made by the Messiah and his disciples cannot begin to compare with those of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. As great as they may be in their own right, they hold no value against the sacrifices made by the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. First, the ministry of the Messiah is reported to have lasted for three years. And even during this brief period, the injustices his opponents inflicted on him were limited to a few instances of verbal abuse and derision. Whereas, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, spent the same length of time under siege in a confined valley, he and his followers were deprived of food and water, and trade with them was made punishable. Their suffering was so acute, the Prophet's wife, Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, fell ill and died as a result. His companions would narrate that at times due to a shortage of food, they would survive by eating leaves, and in consequence, their excrement would resemble that of goats. The lives of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his followers were attacked on numerous occasions. They were stoned, strangulated, pelted with filth. There was no agony which they did not suffer. But through it all, Allah the Exalted continually instructed them to have patience as had the messengers of strong determination, and be steadfast in resisting your enemies. Is it not strange that despite knowledge of this, those who call themselves Muslims and scholars believe, when the Messiah was to be crucified, Allah the Exalted gave his likeness to another man, and placed him in the hands of the Jews while raising the actual Messiah to heaven? If this were true, Christians would be justified in the belief their guide is greater than the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, on the basis that he underwent 13 years of hardship in Mecca and five more in Medina. Allah the Exalted made him endure these agonies without coming to his help, whereas the moment Jesus' enemies sought to harm him, God Almighty raised him to the fourth heaven and did not tolerate his torment for an instant. I call on those who grieve for the plight of Islam and who claim to love the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, peace be upon him, and ask whether you have given thought to the damage such scholars have inflicted on Islam 
and how they have dishonored the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, by raising the Messiah to heaven. Have you ever considered that the doctrine of the Messiah surviving in heaven for so many years, as advanced by these scholars, only strengthens the hand of Christianity? Quite clearly an individual raised to heaven and kept alive, there by Allah the Exalted, is perforce more lofty than anyone who is allowed to live an average age, and then caused to die by divine will. Moreover, if it were accepted that not only was the Messiah still alive, but that he brought the dead to life as is commonly believed by the Muslims of today, then God forbid, no doubt can remain, the Messiah is greater than the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Does the Holy Quran, the final book of God Almighty, support this belief? Certainly not. The Holy Quran categorically rejects this and says in the clearest terms, The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is the chief of all prophets. All the messengers took an oath that if he were raised in their age, they would bring faith in him and extend him their help and support. How is it possible to ignore a sovereign and adorn one of lesser rank in regal dress? Allah the Exalted is not unjust. If the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, truly is the chief of all prophets, and I swear by God, in whose hand is my life, surely cursed are those who give false testimony in his name. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is certainly the chief of all prophets and messengers, then no one who has previously lived, and no one who will ever be born, can rise to his rank. All others are subservient to him, and the nearness to God Almighty enjoyed by him, and the jealousy God Almighty showed for him, has not been accorded to anyone else, nor has God Almighty ever shown such regard for another. Who was the Messiah? He was but one in a long line of prophets from the Mosaic dispensation, whereas the rank of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, peace be upon him, was such that all of the Mosaic prophets combined could not attain it. Thus, how is it possible God Almighty raised the Messiah to heaven in order to protect him from the onslaughts of his enemies? and left the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, alone, for people to pelt him with rocks until he was wounded and bleeding, or to stone him and break his blessed teeth, and not cease until he fell unconscious as in the battle of Uhud. I swear by God, this could not have happened. If God Almighty were to raise anyone to heaven, it would have been the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And if God had willed to keep anyone alive for centuries, it would surely again have been him. Foolish are those who believe God Almighty raised the Messiah to heaven, where he is alive to this day. This creed not only goes against the Holy Quran, it bolsters Christianity. Moreover, it is an insult not only to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, but also to God Almighty, as it implies, God forbid, 
that he is unjust, for the one who deserved the best of his bounties was dealt with unfairly, and the one who deserved lesser bounties was given the best of them. It further suggests, God forbid, that God Almighty was helpless to do anything in this world, and therefore raised the Messiah to heaven in order to save him. If Muslims would only reflect, they would recognise this belief of the Messiah being raised to heaven was foolishly invented by Christians on account of the fact it clearly says in their interpolated scripture the kingdom of God does not hold sway on the earth. So to this day, Christians beseech God to establish his kingdom in the world just as he has in heaven. But in Islam, such doctrines are considered disbelief. The Quran clearly says, To Allah belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. Christians have little option but to accept God Almighty raise the Messiah to heaven, for according to their beliefs, the kingdom of God is not established on the earth. Therefore, he was unable to protect the Messiah in this world. But what of the Muslims? What caused them to imitate Christians and raise the Messiah to heaven without good cause? The kingdom of their God is established in heaven and earth. What need was there for him to raise his prophet to heaven from fear of the Jews? He could have protected him and brought destruction on his enemies in this very world. No matter how you look at it, the belief the Messiah is alive in heaven is an affront to God Almighty and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Christians have taken advantage of these circumstances and hundreds of thousands of Muslims have faltered due to this creed and entered the fold of Christianity as a result. There is still time for the Muslims to ponder and repent from this nonsensical and un-Islamic tenet and convince others from among them to do the same. Otherwise, to insult the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is no minor offence. They should know that one day they will entrust their lives to the custody of God Almighty rather than their clerics. Therefore, while there is still time, the Muslims should unite as one and drive this foul creed which insults the Prophet, peace be upon him, from their hearts and thereby loosen from themselves the grip of Christianity. Let the Messiah die, for in his death is the death of Christianity and the life of Islam. Is there a fervent soul out there who would bring death to the Messiah and revitalize Islam? Surely, those who would do this from a religious zeal rather than from a rationalist approach would earn the mercy of God Almighty and he would enable them to tread on his chosen paths. With humility, Mirza Mahmud Ahmed, Imam of the Ahmadiyya community, Qadian.
I want to kind of return to something you said earlier, which is that you said you're setting your sights too low if you're just trying to dominate others in this life. Because I think, you know, what we're saying here is that it's about fulfillment. It's about actually recognizing your purpose and going for that, which is unity with God of ego death, realizing you are ultimately nothing and then transcending this world. But still, we have some kinds of, well, we all have different capacities. We all have different ta different talents, which are given to us by God. And we do exist in a world where needs need to be met. So what is the difference in the kind of spiritual theistic outlook on working in the world compared to the atheistic outlook? I think um, it's to do with, <clears throat> part of it is to do with the purpose as to why we're doing the work in the first place. Yeah. Um, I think lots of people who are trying, for example, to get to a high position in their career mm. will want to do it because they want to attain kind of grandiosity. They want to become, you know, the boss. They want to yeah. be the, the in charge of the organization. You know, some people want to help other people as well, you know, and make, make the society a better place. Mm. But again, they're very kind of worldly, temporary intentions. Um, intentions. Yeah. Whereas the religious, uh, the purest kind of religious Islamic philosophy is that every act that we should do should be for the sake of God yeah, and should be to try and attain the pleasure of God mm. um, and ultimately try and reflect the attributes of God, mm. of, of mercy, of graciousness, of all, all these kind of things. And I think that that impacts upon morality as well. So for example, um, if we were, you know, truly fearful of God, we wouldn't lie to get to a higher position within a company, for example. Yeah. So our morality and our love for God would trump anything else. Mm. And simultaneously, we would have a trust in God that he would help us and provide for us. So like, even if you want to speak out against something wrong, then you'll you'll do it without that fear of, well, yeah. these people are my providers, my employers. You'll be like, well, God is my provider. Exactly. So, so, I mean, God tells us that we should go out and we should kind of make the world a better place and we mm. should fulfill our roles within society. But we should do them with the correct intentions in mind mm. and with the thoughts that ultimately will be accountable to God. Yeah. But not just that we should develop a relationship with God such that we have a relationship of love for God and fear yeah. for God so that we don't want to do anything bad, not just for threat of punishment, mm. but just because of the the devotion and the love we have for him. So then if I'm a, if I'm an atheistic doctor, okay. I mean, yeah. it's, it's laudable in, in, in a sense, yeah. But if I'm doing it, if I'm doing that work for that individual person, as well as maybe my career and my ego, and my status, the same, the work will be the same. Whereas if you have a, a theistic spiritual doctor who is yeah. then doing that service for other people that he knows are also the creation of God. And therefore yeah. a kind of the intention kind of comes up to God and then returns back to the world in every act of goodness that they do. It's like, well, I know that you're also a being of God and I want to serve you because I love God. And a creation I, I, of God, not a being of God. Sorry, a creation of God. And I, I love God. Therefore, I want to serve the creation of God. Whereas if you're not that, it's kind of, there's a disconnect. Everything becomes a bit more, a bit less meaningful in your own, your own ego, your own careerism kind of comes into yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you made at the end there, which is that your ego fills the vacuum. Mm. Um, I've seen this a lot where, you know, there is the outward display of doing good. Mm. But <clears throat> when you plummet a little bit deeper, you realize that actually there's an in inner motivation to do with how are people looking at me, how are people regarding me, what's my title, how many yeah. letters do I have after my name, right? And I think maybe individually... 
you know, we have one atheistic doctor and one theistic doctor and they have slightly different intentions. It doesn't make a difference. You know, overall, mm. the patients still get saved, all these good things. So happen. outwardly, it looks the same. It looks the same. But I think on a societal level, right. if you have an atheistic okay. society compared to a theistic one, yeah. a true theistic one where people, you know, are, are truly kind of fearful of God. We're not yeah. we're not arguing for a theocracy, just to be clear. No. <laughs> no, or, no. Or, or that other Muslim majority nations have, have this per se either. Yeah, but, but I'm saying if you have a society or a collection or a group of, of people who are, you know, truly religious, yeah. um, then the results will be much better because mm. their intentions will always be good. There'll be less corruption. There'll be less, you know, you can see the effects of the egotism and the, yeah. the, the other kind of vested interests on a societal level. I mean, this comes through in academia as well. We have a friend who, um, who recently left academia at quite a high position, mm. uh, at least largely because he saw how much corruption and dishonesty there was in, um, in this particular field, which yeah. is a very hard science field. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And he said, "I'm trying my best to think of who." <laughs> I'll tell you. Okay, <laughs> uh, but he's in kind of ne- neuroscience kind of area, and um, and he said that that, that you, you could see this deception and dishonesty mm. of these mm. of these apparently acclaimed kind of scientists and intellectuals, and that is that is known to be actually rife. There are anyone who's really embedded in, in academia that be like, "Yeah, that happens," yeah. and then we wonder yeah. why we have this big replication crisis in 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 science. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what were you saying? But you you've even seen it on the wards. Do you feel? Do you have you seen that kind of in your life? In, no, in other doctors I, mean, I work in a very I work with a really nice bunch of people. To be honest, hmm. um, I can't really say anything negative about them. Not least because they might see this. But <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously I wouldn't. It's because it's, it, it wouldn't be professional anyway. But and and they are lovely people. Um, but I've seen it generally with I've seen it generally with professional people. Mm-hmm. which is that, you know, people are willing to do good in, in terms of what is um, uh, socially acceptable yeah. and what is um, going to be of benefit to their career. But if you ask people, are you going to be, this is just a sense, I haven't seen this per se from any individual, but I'm just getting a sense of it from people generally in society, which is that, you know, people, if you ask people, would you be willing to say or do this thing which you think is right mm. but will be something which will invite negative consequences for you mm. right for your career you know naturally the consequences is that people pull back from doing that and the reason ultimately is because again it comes back to this question of purpose <clears throat> this idea that you can be good without god is a big fallacy because you can do good while not believing in god but that will only uh, work um, in accordance with the purpose you set for yourself, as long as it doesn't clash with the purpose you've set for yourself. If you set for yourself the purpose of getting top in your okay. career, right, um, then ultimately, by definition, that is your purpose. So hmm. if anything clashes with that, it will naturally have to fall away. If a mother is, her, her whole focus in life is taking care of her kids, if she has the opportunity to save her child and she has no way of saving a child without harming another child, she will save her child, Mm. right? Because that is her purpose by Mm. definition. So you come to realize from this kind of thought experiment, which is that the only purpose that actually enables you to behave in a moral way is where your purpose is to behave in a moral way. Mm. Right now, the question is what incentivizes that perspective on life? Yeah. The only way to incentivize that perspective on life is a belief in God and accountability. Otherwise, at the end of the day, you can't just like 
you know, life is filled with suffering and difficulty and you will be pulled away from that mm. by the necessities of life if it's just a belief, an mm. empty belief with no actual substance behind it, that you will be held accountable for your deeds. I, and, and also this is made explicit in the Quran, perhaps more than any other book. There's, there's a verse which starts by saying, um, God is talking to Muslims and says, you are the best people created for mankind, for the good of mankind, because you enjoin good and you forbid evil. Mm. And I think that's that's showing that it's not a vain boast. It's not saying, oh, Muslims are just by definition the best because they're Muslims. It's saying that the the true Muslim and the true you know definition of a Muslim, really part of it is, or, or the true characteristic of a Muslim rather, is somebody that should enjoin good and forbid evil. So morality mm. has to be their highest purpose, and it's that that makes them the best. Mm. It's not them, you know, being and, and that's how they serve because you've been raised for, to, as the best of people for the good of mankind. So that's how yeah. they serve mankind is by is by promoting that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, what we're talking about then is actually quite profound because <coughs> we're saying <laughs> yes, that, we are. No, it's true. Can, it's very profound. <laughs> Extraordinarily. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> You can um, you can live your life in a, in in an apparently worldly way in the sense that you have a job, you have a family, you're living your life, you're trying to do well in your career, mm. which seems outwardly the same as as the atheist, but at, with a spiritual perspective, you're it's imbued with much greater purpose. And it mm. reminds me of this. You know, there are many hadith qudsi as well, which are sayings of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, which he reported were revealed to him by God about how someone will do apparently a good action, but God won't reward them for it in the next life because they didn't do it for God, mm. which sounds kind of harsh when you, when you first hear it, but then you realize they've got, God has already made a system where they've been rewarded. If you're doing that, that if you're giving that meal to someone who's poor because you feel like it's a good thing to do, then you have fulfilled that. And if you're doing it for their smile, then you have fulfilled that. And if you're doing that to, to look good in front of others, you have fulfilled that. Whatever you are doing, whatever you are inputting, you're getting the output already because you did it for a worldly purpose the world purpose was fulfilled it's it's, it's been yeah. served yeah but if you do it for god then god rewards you in the next life so you get all the things in this life as well but you also get stuff in the next life and you get a relationship with god so everything you do becomes imbued with purpose and and weight whereas if you have this kind of atheistic outlook everything kind of washes away into kind of vapid vapidity and kind of uh and meaninglessness mm. which is which is amazing because it means that the that any individual can actually seek to have a spiritual life and live a normal life, but that normal life takes on a much more um, heightened sense of meaning. Yeah, and it becomes yeah. suddenly much more profound, even though it's just maybe you're just working as an Uber driver mm. with your family and trying to eke out a living while going to the mosque and praying at night. That life, which may seem like nothing, actually, you know, every greeting that you give to your to your customers may actually be something which brings you rewards in the next life and enhances your relationship with God. Mm. So everything becomes so much more real. And also that that remembrance of God, whereby you're remembering God before doing an action and you're mm. doing a good action, God says that it's in the remembrance of God that hearts can find contentment. Mm. And I think it's it's also very beautiful because it shows that whatever our situation, whether we're rich or poor, you know, whatever circumstance we've been brought up, whether we're a quadriplegic or anything like that, God has given equal opportunity for everybody yeah. in a way to attain self-contentment within themselves. Yeah. And it's not know, dependent on uh, on your muscles or whatever. And the extraordinary yeah. thing is it's actually got nothing to do with material accumulation. Mm. It's actually all got to do with your relationship with God. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, you just need to basically turn to God in your heart and speak to God and that door is open for you. Um, so it is extraordinary how people run around 
looking for that. And it's so close. <laughs> it's so close. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just so close. Hmm. But they haven't got a clue that yeah. it's there. And this is what Allah says in the Quran. It says Allah is closer than you, to you than your uh, life artery. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Um, but people don't realize it. And it's also, I mean, if you want true motivation, that's true motivation. Because the, the dark side of the kind of self-improvement crowd is that in reality... Most people are not going to get that rich. An extremely nasal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're not going to get rich. They're no. not going to. They 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 may be working a really long hard job where they don't have time to to properly work out, or they don't have the mental resources to be you know on it all the time and yeah. you know improving yeah. themselves. Like you can't just. Not everyone can do that. And with this kind of crowd, you could end up feeling like a failure if you can't, even though it's potentially actually kind of structurally beyond you, or it would require mm. you to be so exceptional. Whereas yeah. with this kind of outlook, you can live a fairly ordinary life, but actually be extraordinary. And this outlook also promotes some of the things that the self-improvement crowds do touch upon, such as discipline and such as routine. Yeah. And through things like five times daily prayer mm. that, that Islam um, kind of prescribes, yeah. that provides, even if you do very little else in a day, the fact that you've prayed five times in a day yeah. is, is quite a, you know, quite an achievement. It's quite a good routine mm. and, and a disciplined thing. And then fasted for a month in Ramadan. Yeah. Give every give give charity, you know, out of your income mm. on a regular basis. And in actual fact, the the structure of Islam is such that I was reading um, a sermon by the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in this book, excellent book called Mashallah, mm. uh, the Beacon of Truth, Beacon of Truth, Beacon of Youth, Mashallah. I wish I knew Urdu better. Anyway, um, <laughs> and and one of the I'm towards the end of it, Beacon of Youth thing is, and he goes yeah, towards the end of the book. Um, he talks about how, why is it that the West has degenerated in its worship of God? Mm. Why is religion degenerated? And he says it's because their religion do not prescribe anything for the body. So he talks in this thing a lot about how the body and the soul both need to be engaged in worship. And in fact, one protects the other. The, sp the, the prostration of the spirit gives meaning to the prostration of the body with it. Mm. But the prostration of the body secures the foundations and protects the, the prostration of the soul, which is that because we have an Islam, a set of postures and set times to do it and, and, and uh, instruction to do it in congregation with other human beings. So mm. there's a degree of accountability there within your local community as well. Um, because of all these things, it means that, you know, mosques are populated throughout the world. But because the Christians just have this notion of prayer, which is just, you know, you just turn to God in your heart and you start talking to God while you're gardening or while you're doing the lawn mowing, etc. And then that's your worship for the day. Because there's no formulaic or formal worship. The consequence is, is that, you know, you can just say, well, I've done it, you know. And so it just the habit is lost. Mm. So, and that goes for all of our things. You know, for example, he talks also about how the act of doing good to others is formalized through charity. Mm. Charity has become this becomes a symbol in Islam that you have done good to your fellow human being. And zakat is a necessary. And, and zakat is not is a necessary part of pillar of faith. Whereas in Christianity, it's good to give charity. Yeah, it's great. Is it mandatory? Is anything mandatory? Is worship yeah. mandatory? Is worship mandatory? Nothing's mandatory. Like developing a relationship with anybody, whether it's human or whether it's God, requires regularity and requires discipline. You can't think if I just go, you know, twice a year to church or twice. Sorry, twice a year to you know, see somebody, we're going to have a deep and close relationship. No, exactly. It, it requires a discipline. And I was also thinking about the chat GPT um, answer that, that it gave about finding um, happiness. And one of the things was about building relationships with others, positive relationships. Mm. And through prayer, that's, that's, one, that's one way because 
I mean, I've personally made many friends just by kind of praying with them regularly. And mm. then you kind of grow to meet them and you grow and build a community. Mm. And a lot of people are missing that kind of community spirit today because yeah. in a way the society lacks it. Yeah. And I mean, the best you can do is go play tennis with them or something or, you know. Yeah, that's fun. I do. That is good. Yeah. Um, it's a different, <laughs> it's a different way. Um, but you, it's not, it's not, it's not a, a kind of a shared engagement in something meaningful. Yeah. Like prayer yeah. And again, you know, building the meaning and purpose, which is also what ChatGPT said. Hmm. Um, gratitude. There's nobody to practice gratitude to. I think that was one of the answers. Yeah. Hmm. If you're in an atheistic world, you can be gra grateful to other people. You can be grateful to, you know. In, but in can you really? Because most of them believe, well, the hardened but, atheists intellectually don't believe we have free will. So, I mean, no one had the, the ability to not do good to you anyway. So what are you yeah. being grateful for? Yeah. I mean, they're generally grateful, aren't they? But not to a specific, <laughs> not to a specific thing. There's no target for their gratitude. Whereas, you know, we, we, we have that. You've been listening to Weekend World on today, Sunday, the 15th of October, 2023. Thank you for listening and do join us again soon.